Welcome to this episode of Still Unbelievable. A few things to be aware of while you're listening. I had to cut Robert's contact links due to audio issues, so check for those in the show notes. Also, during this episode we divert off the subject of the atonement and touch on healing and the announced COVID-19 vaccine. Please be aware that this was recorded a few weeks before going live, so the vaccination information discussed will be old by the time you hear it. On the healing discussion, Andrew makes an appeal for anyone to be involved in a genuine test for amputee healing prayer. If you are, or someone you know is, prepared to take part in such a test, please contact us using reasonpress at gmail.com. Now on to the show. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable, your regular duo at the helm here, Matthew and Andrew, and we've got a special guest who has actually been a friend of the show for quite some time, more than a year, maybe even two years. You'll have heard him on the Skeptics and Seekers podcast. You'll have also heard him on the Doubts Allowed podcast not very long ago. I have been on his podcast briefly as a special guest about a year ago, I think it was, it is Robert White from the Robert L. White Show. Welcome, Robert. It's very late, but at last we've got you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to discussing. It's going to be a good show. Now, the last few episodes, dear listeners, you will have noticed that Andrew and I have hosted some quite spiky episodes uh, against Christianity. This is going to be a very different episode. Robert is a friend of the show. We've asked him on and... I asked Robert on because after the unbelievable episode where they were talking about penal substitution, and which I believe was William Lane Craig and uh, Greg Boyd in conversation on that, Robert posted up on Twitter that he was going to listen to the episode, but a friend listened to it instead for him. And that had exactly the same result. And <laughs> because I'm a dad and because it's a dad joke, I laughed and I laughed more than Andrew is chuckling in the background now. So I thought, I'm having you, mate. And so that's how Robert got the invitation onto the show. So thank you, Robert. Thank you for your awesome sense of, hum- of humour. Uh, my, my teenager would probably not agree, <laughs> but there we go. Um, and so to kick us off then, what are the challenges that uh, Christians need to overcome when it comes to the subject of uh, penal substitution and atonement? Yeah, so first of all, I, I highly recommend that chat between uh, Greg Boyd and William Lane Craig. You guys both listened to the whole thing, is that right? Yes, and again this afternoon, so twice for me. Nice, I, I also listened again uh, yesterday. It, it's a great chat just to get acquainted with, really, I would say, pr- prelimi- uh, primarily the penal substitution view and then also some challenges to it. Greg doesn't go into like details of other named views for the atonement, but it's a great chat. I wanted to start this with uh, a quote from the legendary comic George Carlin about religion. So he says, religion has actually convinced people there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these 10 things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. (laughs) I've not heard that before. 
There is, uh, I, I love that joke. It's, he delivers it so well, too. You can actually look up that joke on YouTube, which is where I, uh, I was able to transcribe it. What I love about this, and for, for the listeners, I don't know how much we even said this, but I'm a Christian. Like, I'm, you know, I'm reading this, and I, I am a Christian. Um, and, but what, what's so great about this joke is it illustrates that you can't simply tag on, he loves you to anything and it somehow fixes it if you talk to a lot of christians uh, particularly ones brought up with certain doctrine and who haven't perhaps fully thought it through it sounds like they're doing that they say all these things that maybe on surface level or maybe even when you think deeply about it sound awful and then it's like but he loves you and um in preparation for this Partly, I listened to some N.T. Wright episodes. He's a, mm. a Christian scholar, really deep thinker. He has a podcast called Ask N.T. Wright Anything. I listened to some of his Atonement episodes, and he brings up a very similar point to Carlin in that if you talk to a lot of people today, a lot of lay people, the way they describe what they think the Atonement is, is just this really raw, simplistic thing of like God needed to pour his wrath somewhere and jesus sort of happened to step in the way and happened to be innocent and god's son and thank goodness we didn't have to take that punch jesus did for us from god and nt wright even goes to say that listening to these people describe it you would think that john three sixteen says god so hated the world that he killed his only son and what what's awful about this viewpoint is that when you then try to tack on but he loves you then it can almost even make things worse. Uh, it becomes very similar to what, uh, uh, this is what N.T. Wright says, it becomes similar to what abusers do when they are they abuse you and then they add on, I do this because I love you or something like that. It actually is worse. It distorts reality. So the whole reason I say all that is these things are important. Like we can't simply come up with an awful view of God by any other measure, uh, and then just happen to say, but in this case, it's love. Like, how we actually view these things matter. And Greg Boyd says in in that debate with uh, William and Craig, he says that your passion for God will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God. And I think that is such a profound statement. I'm going to say it again. Your passion for God will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God. So if you have the mental conception that George Carlin has, you can't just tag on, but he loves you at the end and then go be a happy Christian. That's kind of my my intro to kind of get into some of the issues off the bat with penal substitution. Just to add a little bit more detail on my end, I actually did a debate on my podcast with another Christian friend of mine who has a philosophy degree, smart guy, and we did a debate on um, is retribution necessary for justice? And that is where I come from, is that a lot of the hardcore penal substitution views have this extremely, what I would say, a, an extremely reified view of retribution. And it ends up including this thing I like to call the cosmic accounting book. And what I mean by that is that somehow humanity with sin we have like gone into the red in this cosmic accounting book and God has to get the numbers back to zero. And it doesn't really matter how he gets it. He just has to get it back. Killing you, killing Jesus, it doesn't really matter. Someone's got to die. 
and you'll even hear someone like William Lane Craig say that um, I think he gave this as a potential um, viewpoint on why people ha uh, suffer eternally in hell. I, by the way, I'm an annihilationist. I don't even believe people suffer eternally in hell. One objection to that view people will bring up is how is that just for someone to suffer e eternally for a finite sin? And one view is that when someone is in hell, they're still sinning. They're um, they're cursing God and being selfish or whatever, and they are accruing. And I've even heard theologians say the term accrue, just back to that cosmic accounting book. They're accruing more pain as justice. And so this is my problem is that hardcore penal substitution view, you end up with this substance that is being passed back and forth of sin and then justice and wrath is almost like this substance that needs to go somewhere. And all of a sudden, we're just in this weird metaphysical space that seems pretty foreign from our normal understandings of what justice is and forgiveness. To me, that, that is a starting point of like, it's got it. There's something more going on there. And if you boil it down into these little facts of wrath being passed back and forth and sin being passed back and forth, um, it gets weird. And just to end this opening, I think it's a common Muslim objection to Christianity, the very idea that you can just substitute someone in to suffer the same punishment as uh, the guilty party. Like, that doesn't seem just on the surface level. So all that is to say some of these things need to be thought deeply about, and the standard surface level penal substitution view does not deal with these adequately. And I could go further than that, but let me just leave it there for you guys. So would you support more of a ransom view than penal substitution? Yes. So what I, I've i come up with, it's not really my own view. I mean, I think it's very similar to like some of the early church fathers, but I like to call it the Trojan horse view. And actually, ransom is another good word for it, that God paid a ransom for us. But what the key thing is that it was a false payment, which is like the Trojan horse. He gives the horse, but the horse is the thing that ends up undoing the enemy. That aligns very closely to what Paul says, I believe, that the powers and principalities, if they knew what would have happened by killing Jesus, they wouldn't have done it. So somehow there's this kind of trickery involved about what they're getting by killing Jesus. Um, and so the ransom view, and also I actually got to ask N.T. Wright about this in person briefly, and he agreed that this Trojan horse view is something the early church, some of the early fathers said. Um, and I've also heard it called the fish hook. Once again, it's this sort of trickery of seeming to pay the enemy and it being the thing that gets undone. It also reminds me of like the parable of like Faust and signing a contract with the devil, which once again is like a ransom that we then need to be ransomed to get to escape from that clause. Um, and, and I think that for the listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with all these things, one of the key ideas is like who is getting paid, who is demanding blood, because in the penal substitution view, it it can be simplified to God is the one demanding blood, God is the one getting paid, and He does get paid in that view. And the the ransom view, uh, Greg Boyd also compares this to Narnia, that in that view, the witch is the one demanding blood, the pound of flesh. Aslan pays the witch, but with a false payment. And that that is what I lean towards. And I'm not saying it solves all the problems, but it seems more in line with 
well, seems more philosophically sound and more moral, and I think arguably is more uh, in line with the New Testament as well. Let me ask you a question. This is probably like, you know, second year theology. If you haven't thought about this, it's okay to just say, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't really have an answer because I'm not trying to pin you with a hard question. And I'll readily admit that this is the sort of question that would be asked in some seminary course, right? And so in the sort of Trojan horse model, one of the things that I always appreciate it, or, or in a ransom model, I think we have a problem, but there's a thing that I appreciated about theology. And that was the attempt to reconcile the New Testament against the Old Testament through type and anti-type relationships. Mm -hmm. And so if Jesus is a ransom and God is not demanding blood in the New Testament, that seems to break the type-anti-type relationship unless you think uh, that the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament did not have a restorative effect and God was not actually asking for the sacrifices. You see what I mean? Because in the Old yeah. Testament, whether it's clear or not, I think most people would accept that God is absolutely asking for sacrifice in the sense of atonement. And so if you cast that forward into the New Testament in a sort of theological class way, then you'd say the anti-type in the New Testament is that same kind of atonement, which appears to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but it appears to me to line up better with penal substitution than it does with other models. And I wonder if you have some thoughts on that. And like I said, it's okay if you don't. Yeah, no, that is exactly what the first question should be be to the person who is questioning penal substitution, I think. I think the first thing that has to be said is the comparison to Jesus to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is not as straightforward as you might think. Just to give some examples, the sin was not declared over the animal in the sacrificial system with one exception, and that exception was the scapegoat. Uh, and the scapegoat was not killed. It was driven out of the camp and it couldn't be killed because it was not clean anymore. It had sin on it. So right there, there seems to be a difference in how Jesus is seen compared to a straightforward understanding of the cultic system. And uh, another difference is the animals that were killed in sacrifices were not killed on the altar like they were in pagan sacrifices. The blood, I think, is what was important and was seen as almost like a detergent to cleanse. And obviously, so so one thing N.T. Wright says is that it seems like with Jesus, two different narratives are coming together. One is the cultic sacrifice practices, but then a huge narrative that lays behind all of this is the Exodus and the blood of, of the lamb on the doorpost which I believe had nothing to do with sin at all. It was simply as like a marker of protection. And that's a huge thing as the backdrop for Jesus's death. In fact, it was happening at Passover, as we all know. It's not quite the obvious link that you would think. Now, it's obviously related. I, in no way am I trying to say this, this has nothing to do with the, the temple sacrifices. But I guess growing up, I think the obvious view is, oh, it's just another temple sacrifice, but it's the final one. And it's not as clear cut as that. And another example is it sounds like from the New Testament that I don't think it ever says God condemned Jesus. It says that he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus and that Jesus like drew together that sin onto his flesh. Uh, it's a little bit 
stranger. But I totally agree with you that that's still kind of a starting point is that sacrificial system. It's not quite as clear what was going on in the Israelites' heads when they were doing that. And especially when you consider like the scapegoat and stuff like that. And I don't, I don't want to get too far afield, but just to add another element, I am a huge Greg Boyd fan. And another element of his theology is that God came into a barbaric culture, the Israelites, and slowly redeemed them over time. And so the Israelites started out doing exactly what all the other cultures were doing, which was these sacrifices, and slowly drew them away from that, ultimately coming to Jesus and sacrifices ended. So I view some of the cultic sacrifices as sort of an accommodation entering into relationship with these Israelites. And so that as another wrinkle, I know that's a whole nother thing though. So we're talking about atonement and you mentioned the death of the firstborn as the last plague in the book of Exodus. Mm -hmm. You know, the the 10 plagues over Egypt when uh, the Israelites were being held captive. And if the angel of death is visiting and taking the firstborn and thing that saves is the blood of the lamb on the lintel, right? So I I do agree that we've got a clear type anti-type relationship, whatever it is there Mm -hmm. with Jesus sacrifice. But if the firstborn children, including the animals, right? If, If all of those are not being taken as a result of transgression, it may not be impossible to understand the story, but that is what most people think of when they think of this death, right? God is uh, yes. God is angry at Egypt. And so I'd be interested to, to hear what you think that is all about, because that may help polish up the type-anti-type relationship that has more to do with ransom than penal substitution. I don't disagree with that. I think it the reason the plagues happened was due to judgment on sin. But I guess... I don't think it's the case that the blood of the lamb was seen as like a substitute for the Israelites' sin in that case. I I guess that it was like more of a marker of the covenant. And because they are God's covenant people, they were protected. Uh, It's not a forgiveness of sin kind of thing. It's just an identifier. Right. That's what I understand more. I gotcha. I have a question on the ransom model. And... To me, it seems like the the most obvious objection to to the ransom model, and for me, it, it it's a blocker for me to even take it seriously, even if I was a Christian. And that is, the ransom model seems to imply that there is somebody bad who's holding the ransom who needs to receive the payments. And I think they briefly touched on this in the unbelievable episode, which I'm talking about. So if Jesus is having to be sacrificed and God is having to handle the payment for the ransom. Well, then, who is the one who's holding everybody to ransom? Because in our parlance, whoever's holding everybody to ransom is the baddie. They're certainly not the goodie. So you're not going to accept God as being the person who's holding everybody to ransom. So the obvious alternative then is the devil. But the person who's holding everybody to ransom seems to be the person with all the power. And so that kind of dichotomy there seems to me that the whole ransom model just can't work. It just doesn't fit the Christian narrative of loving God also being the all-powerful one. Right. Um, and I, I think that I, I don't have like a perfect clear-cut answer to that. 
my understanding of like the ransom view and definitely how like Greg Boyd would present it is that it is the devil demanding the payment. He's the accuser. So my viewpoint would be that it ties into ideas of free will as like a explanation for the problem of evil, for instance. It, it becomes sort of like, why doesn't God end all evil? It, you know, free will must be worth it and all that sort of stuff. So basically it, it almost seems like the way God th- set things up that due to our free will, we can go over to the other side if we want to, and we can give power to the devil, if you want to just you know put it starkly. And humanity did do that, and we continue to do that. And the question is how exactly Jesus's death broke that power. But and it's possible. I think this is a, a key point. It's possible that the crucifixion wasn't the only way. Perhaps it was God's best way of breaking that power. Uh, And it seemed to accomplish more things than once. I mean, self-sacrificial love um, is a pretty fundamental part of uh, Western morality, I think. Like, we honor that. And so that crucifixion became, you know, one of the key models of self-sacrificial love. So it accomplished that. And so the the sort of weird metaphysical question that is probably the hardest to answer is exactly how Jesus's death like metaphysically broke that spell to put it in Narnia terms. But I would say the reason why there was this sort of contract in the beginning, the Faustian contract, um, is due to God giving us free will to basically go make a contract with the devil. And God's choice of how to free us from that ended up being the crucifixion. And um, obviously God at any time could have just uh, removed everyone from existence. That would also deal deal with the problem. Uh, he can make us robots. That would deal with the problem. But maybe there's more limited alternatives when he's trying to continue freedom of the will and also sort of release this from this bondage to this evil power. And like I said, that is the metaphysical most mysterious core is exactly the mechanics of that and i'm fine saying that there's some mystery there and you also have to add in ideas of like all the talk of us being in christ and dying with christ and raising you know there's this i'm forgetting the technical term but just uh uh being included in the identity of christ and what that does sort of meta metaphysically And, and just as a quick point to the person who who says, well, are you sort of, you know, resorting to mystery there? And what I would say is I'm okay having mystery where you would sort of expect mystery. And we're talking about possibly the most deep metaphysical issue about morality and free will. And so I'm okay with there being that being a bit hard to understand. I don't like punning to, to mystery when it seems more straightforward and we're trying to get out of a tricky question. So hopefully I'm not doing that here, but I, I think that is the the hardest part is that actual mechanism of how his death accomplished that there. Okay. But did, did that partly answer your It, it your did, question? because if I can try and translate that uh, back. So I think kind of the way I'm getting from your answer is that it only looks like Satan has got one up in terms of uh, holding everybody to ransom here. And it is a consequence of of the fall and our free will, but ultimately God still knows what He's doing. It's like the um, if you want to put it in Hollywood uh, movie parlance, you know the 
the the police officer has really got a secret trick. Like this is probably where the whole Trojan horse thing comes back in. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah, you know, he's he's got the se- the secret trick that is going to, to pull one back over on the devil. And it, it, the whole thing is playing out because the devil, in his cockiness, thinks he's got one over. But actually, God's still got one card to play, and this is how we overcome. So God isn't really being bullied into this situation, but he's letting everybody else believe that that's what the case is. Yes, and I do believe his options might be more limited because he wants to allow free will to continue. I I see it as like uh, humanity appeared on the scene. Um, We all went over to the devil's team, in a sense, and the devil's like, what are you going to do about it now, God? Are you going to just delete and start over are you going to take over their minds and this was his method of undoing that and one other cool thing about the the ransom idea is you can even literally think of it as a ransom like a ransom movie where the cops to lure out the kidnappers and pay Mm -hmm. the ransom they pay the ransom but it's a false ransom it has like the die in it so when they open it the ink explodes and um the cops uh get get their cake and eat it uh, have their cake and eat it too because they they rescue the person and the money is void so that is to me what is going on okay or you could probably throw a sporting analogy out there where you appear to lose a play but really what you've done is you've exposed the weakness of the other teams so that you can get a final score so yeah there's probably multiple analogies you get i think i can kind of see where it's going with that and i I think I kind of get it. It's a little bit more attractive, I think, now as an idea. I think ultimately, though, the the ball is us, us people. And I think looking at it from our perspective, it feels like we're being treated badly still because we don't understand what's going on. So it's going to feel cruel and it's going to feel bad for us as well. And we won't really know and understand what's going on until the end of the game if that makes sense. Are you sort of talking about, I mean, the problem of evil in general, like we just have such limited knowledge and we're suffering down here sort of thing? Um, I've probably explained that bit um, poorly. I think us, the people being saved, we're sort of bundled up in this bag, taken off, uh, kidnapped, whatever. And um, maybe I'm just taking the analogy too far. But yeah, it's, I'll just, backtrack of that you've you've answered the question i think you've done a pretty good job of uh, overcoming the objection that i had to that issue i'm not sure if it will get me over the line but it certainly makes <laughs> it more acceptable to me well i'm curious it what both you guys i believe were christians before in the past and i'm just curious did penal substitution appeal to you did it bother you what is your history with the idea of the atonement mm-hmm. That's a really good question. For me, I took a very simplistic view of it, and I I never really looked deeply into the various options. I just saw it and as the straight up, we had sinned, the price of our sin was death, Jesus died on our behalf, end of story. And I didn't really go any further into any of the practicalities of how how you want to theologically describe what went on. I just took it at, at face value and accepted it as that. For me, I was, Robert, you've, you've heard some of our shows, so you've probably heard me say that I was a member of the Church of Christ. And if mm-hmm. you, well, without giving away where you're from, you're from a part of the country where the Church of Christ is pretty common. So you may be familiar 
with I don't know the, if I'm super familiar with their doctrine, doctrine actually. I grew up uh, Presbyterian, a very penal substitution, <laughs> actually. Ah, uh, gotcha. So the Church of Christ that I was a member of, the people that don't let pianos in the building, right? They're, uh, oh, wow. You know, acapella I play piano, so that would be a problem. Yeah, yeah, well, so do I, and I, I love it. But, you know, there it is. And uh, we baptized for the remission of sins. We were the only ones going to heaven. I'll, I'll say it again for the listeners. We were a cult. Um, and so for me, I'm sure you've seen those denominations that the doctrine almost seems to create a certain amount of human hatred, right? There's, uh, everyone that's not a church member is an alien sinner. Those people are to be endured. You know, we're, we're in the world, but not of the world. That was uh, a very common saying, uh, with us. And so, yes, the, the sort of atonement that I preached was, yes, God is angry with you over your sin, and he is so angry that if you don't turn, you will burn. Turn or burn. <laughs> right, right. Uh, um, now, eventually, if you really care about the people around you, it's hard to think about that. And either you just get along with the sort of cognitive dissonance, right? Or you start exploring atonement. Mm-hmm. But where I am today is you talked about other ways that God could have solved this problem. One of them was he could have just made us all robots. But it, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that one of the things that I, I think we sort of naturally accept is that there are some free will creatures. And in this case, I'm thinking about the, you know, if you accept that there was a war in heaven and, and Satan is a, is a fallen angel and all of that sort of thing. There are free will creatures in heaven that will always be there because they use their free will and they never use it to subvert God or lust after the, the power of God or covet the things he has, right? So, so there are right. good angels in, in that sense, right? And it seems to me that an all-powerful God could simply look down the threads of the tapestry of time and say, I see what it takes to make a creature who both has free will and will never violate that free will by coveting what I have or by sinning against me or some covenant practice that I mandate. And since that does seem to be uh, part of God's creative power, unless you just say, yeah, actually, there are no angels that will never sin against God or, or something like that, then I don't know why we're playing this game. I really don't. It, it does seem to be that God has the creative power, even within the story that we commonly accept that he can create free will beings that never sin against him. And I don't know why we need anything else. Yeah, that's, um, you bring up interesting points. And in fact, I have been thinking of some related ideas, kind of why don't we already start in heaven? (laughs) You know, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. like why why do we have to go through this phase? And I even wrote into William Lane Craig and one of his like volunteers ended up answering because um, I didn't get selected for that question of the week or whatever. And I I asked a few other like uh, apologist uh, groups. I mean, it was kind of a variety of answers, but I I guess the first thing would be. I think that. It can't be the case that God can at will create an individual that has free will and will be perfect eternally. That if God has that power, then you are correct. It, it doesn't really make sense why 
he chose to create free will agents that do sin. In fact, you're really back to the same problem of attributing sin to God in that case, because he had the choice of not creating agents that sin, and he did do that when he, he could have created ones that didn't sin. So I guess I'm tempted. Now, what I haven't thought about quite as much is the angels. I mean, that is definitely an interesting point. I think someone like William Lane Craig or other theologians would probably say that God did not create, like, it was sort of up in the air how many angels would either, like, stay with him or rebel. Um, And, I mean, but it still leaves the question of the ones that stayed with him. Are they, so they're already perfect, you know? Um, And then there's also this thing of, like, do angels have the same fullness of free will that humans do perhaps because we're made in the image of god and they aren't sorry go ahead no well no sorry i was just active listening i was thinking when you said that i I didn't mean to interrupt i was i was thinking when you said that that that's a, a fine theological point and it's one that i think i encountered back when I was studying theology in college. And so all I'm saying is, I think you're right to point out that along with this common understanding that there are angels that won't sin, it is also fair to point out both of the things that you said, that uh, angels are not God's crowning creation in that sense. And it may well be that their free will has limitations that ours doesn't. So when I made that sort of noise, uh, it was a noise of agreement, and I thought that you teased that apart uh, quite well. Oh, okay, cool. Well, yeah, and I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely figuring this out as I go a little bit too. It's funny, every person has the issues that like bother them more or not, and this is not one that has bothered me as much. So I'm, I'm a little on the seat of my pants more. And no, it does bring up an interesting idea because like some people say that like the reason we will not sin in heaven is because God will be so present and will be enjoying his presence so much that it just won't even enter our minds kind of. And so it's possible that angels, for instance, that are, are with him now are like in that state. So that's why they don't sin is because they're so much closer to that presence. And uh, we have this more hiddenness where we are more allowed to sin. I mean, there's so many. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets complicated for sure. Yeah, I, I can't even remember if that was the beginning of your question. <laughs> if we got no, back it's, to it's your okay. question. What you said there, I think, is a reflection on the Garden of Eden story in a way that will almost make a almost require that the story be taken figuratively, right? Because if the reason people don't sin in heaven is because God's glory is so ever present that people have the capacity but not the will to sin, right? Mm-hmm. Then and so hopefully is that a fair summary of what you said first? Is that yeah, yeah. Th- that is an option. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then we you know, if you rewind the clock, you have to say what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? Because, uh, you know, God's walking in the treetops. Uh, you know, this this is a this is a God who, at least in fairly orthodox conservative circles, this is a God who is much more present with Adam and Eve. Well, I don't want to overspeak here. Mm-hmm. I think lots of people would accept the idea, but I don't know how many and I don't know which denomination. So I don't, I don't want to overspeak. But. I would certainly have accepted the idea that in the Garden of Eden, God was much more present with Adam and Eve than he is in our world 
today, right? And mm-hmm. so if that works in heaven, that God's glory is is present enough that people have the capacity but not the will to sin, then you kind of have to ask, what went wrong back there? <laughs> I mean, I would, well, first of all, I do take it figuratively. I don't necessarily believe in a historical Adam and Eve. And I guess even if I do believe in a historical Adam and Eve, I think probably the story of the fall is still more figurative. Uh, but mm-hmm. even taking it literally, I feel like that's a far cry from what the heavenly state is presented. Because, I mean, in the Garden of Eden, is literally the devil himself and god seems to go away for a while and then come back it's definitely different than how life is now for sure does he um, face palm right yeah. there do you think does he biggest face the palm forever ever yeah he's like face oops <laughs> sorry i yeah. forgot i left that snake roaming around. right right <laughs> exactly uh, Matthew, are you going to yank me back on track? Um, No, I was quite enjoying the way it was um, meandering. So, um, okay, so to get back then, let's see if I can bring it back with the most awkward question I can come up (laughs) with. Probably best stop me, Robert, if I'm if I'm deviating too far down this train of thought from what Christianity is really saying. So the death of Jesus absolved us of our sins is is what I remember being being taught. And. Mm -hmm. All we need to do is ask for the forgiveness that is available to us following that sacrifice. And that sacrifice is across all time. It's a single event applicable uh, across all time. And so that forgiveness is available at, at any point. So I guess there's multiple questions which automatically come from that. One is, can we not just do one prayer for future sins as well? But I guess another question would be for the people who did practice sacrifices was that just a a partial absolving of their sins or or is the the outside of time bit of jesus's sacrifice only going forward see kind of see the area where i'm delving around on this you're asking about people before jesus who like the the jews practicing sacrifices yeah there's it's a, it's a far bigger muddy question than that but yeah that's that's part of it and i'm fairly sure i know the answer to it. it's old covenant versus new covenant uh, but it's also about you know our own behavior as as fallen people as as, as christians about asking for our for our own forgiveness and you know is it one analogy that i've heard of it is it's it's like a bank account you know we can only withdraw what we need at any particular time which is why we have to keep asking for forgiveness so there's all these kinds of complexities around in in how that forgiveness works out in in practice Mm -hmm. is there any way to help try to clear up some of the confusion that will come from people on on that side of it yeah so I definitely went to when you said the whole bank account and like you have to go back to the bank and and deposit again. And (laughs) like I yeah, I mean, I'm definitely anti that view, but not just personally. I think that really goes against Paul's whole scope of things, how he describes things. And let me just recommend to people who want to hear sort of a reboot of these ideas. I haven't fully read it. Um, I actually read part of it for this discussion. The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright is going to be a good starting point to reboot from the New Testament itself and try to get past some of our 
Dante's Inferno influence and all that sort of stuff. Um, and just tons of modern Christianity that I think gets it wrong. I think that the technical word I was looking for before, incorporation, I think is a, in part of this, that it's like, you can't be like partly in Christ or not. You, It's not that you get forgiven for like 60% of your sins or not, or something like right. that. Somehow we are kind of entered into this incorporation in Christ. And within that, sins are forgiven and we are made new. And part of that obviously is ongoing. Like Christians are not perfect from the day they say some simple prayer. This gets you, honestly, your question in my mind overlaps with the idea of how how can we be saved, essentially? How, how do you get your salvation? And that is a, a massive question, but I like to point out a book called Saved by Allegiance Alone by Matthew Bates. His argument, and he's not the only one that argues this, but that the word pistis for faith is better translated as like allegiance or trusting faith. And so there's way more to buying into Christianity, into Christ, than simply having some proposition in your head. Because after all, the devil has that same proposition that, you know, Jesus is, is the son of God. There's a lot more to becoming a Christian than simply believing some certain logical fact in your brain. And then it gets blurry about how do you, you know, what's fully in and what's fully out. And these questions are perennially hard to to completely describe. But there's more to it than just some belief. I mean, I would argue However, it is that you're fully in, then all sins are forgiven. And the people before Jesus, they will be included in that as well due to their faith in God. And we're, we're talking about like eight hard <laughs> or complicated issues at once, because then you also include the person who never hears anything about God at all and what happens with them. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of complex issues there. Uh, feel free to, to ask again if I didn't touch on what you were getting at. No, I think that's that's satisfies me. I'm to be honest, it's, it's it was a messy question, and I probably forgot what I was trying to ask halfway through. Anyway, no and, and I understand this is a, is a this is a big thing, and there's lots of complex issues to get through. So I'm just trying to to pull at whatever it is that's available to try to, to get some kind of understanding of the complexities of what's going on here. And let me and just add for for the kind of the listener is like, I don't want to add an ingredient of vagueness where it's helpful. I don't want to punt to that. Um, and I, in, in my sort of belief system, my epistemology, I want things that should be clear, I want to be clear. Things that are sort of understandably somewhat beyond our knowledge, then I'm more okay with that being a little bit vague or where we haven't been maybe fully told by like the Bible. Um, but I do I do want to avoid being vague for vagues, vagueness sake. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these things would also just take longer to build a foundation from to understand the rest. So, but I don't want to pretend that it, it's acceptable to just, you know, sp sprinkle pixie dust and say somehow God works it out. That that, that should not be a, a default, at least. Yeah, thank you. Andrew? Well, to that end, so... You and I share some values about epistemology, to not make claims that we can't support, to acknowledge when we don't have an answer or, or you know, maybe the answer's out there, but we haven't encountered it or whatever, right? So we share rules about epistemology. In thinking about that, 
I wonder why we have multiple atonement theories. So we've, we've got a ransom theory, penal substitution. We could go on with, uh, you know, with the Catholic Church's theory of atonement. And we, we could come up with, I don't know, there are seven or eight that I researched mm-hmm. coming, coming up to the show. But, but I think the more important question is, if atonement is key to salvation in any meaningful sense, why don't we have, by the way, I'm not actually asking you to, to speak for God, but I would be interested, right? Because, well, first of all, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, an, I'm an atheist, right? But, but there is a, a sort of challenge there. If salvation is based on some atonement theory and understanding atonement is in any way essential to the Christian faith, it seems almost orthogonal that there are multiple atonement theories that have to be grappled with. Yeah, and my answer is very little, if any, of the atonement is truly necessary to be saved. One of my favorite things is that if you look at how Jesus answers the question, implicitly and explicitly, of how to be saved, he he kind of gives different answers at different times, but there's always one constant, and that's follow me. Follow me is pretty much the only constant. And then one time, he only one time, you know, he, does he say born again? Only one time does he say give away everything? Only one time does he say you must, you know, hate your father and mother or, or to, to leave, let the dead bury the dead and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But the constant is the sort of follow me. And so I don't think his disciples were unsaved until they fully understood what happened on the cross and in fact they probably didn't fully understand for for a while like they had to work out some theology with paul it's not like people got saved once paul came around and explained it to them so i think god showed up in jesus and they were captivated by him and his love and his power and his self-sacrificial nature that he showed even before the cross um, by washing their feet and all that sort of stuff. And they said, I want to be on that team. I want to follow this person and who he represents. And then as they understood more about the cross, they were like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I'm, I'm still in, but I don't think that knowledge is the crucial part. It's part of how we explain things today. Back to Matthew Bates, book about saved by allegiance alone he brings up that the way we describe the gospel is pretty different than how they explicitly say the gospel is in the new testament that when that when paul says this is a gospel or like peter and Acts says this is a gospel is actually kind of different and it's very based on christ as enthroned as king um and we boil this down into a campus crusade thing of like uh you know, forgive me so I can go to heaven. Uh, and Jesus died for me. And that's a part of it, for sure. I don't want to discount that, but we, it is pretty different than how the New Testament seems to found it, I would say. Mm. I, I don't know why these two questions came to mind, but there are various schemes. Uh, sorry, that almost sounds, that almost sounds dismissive. By scheme, I, uh, to, so that you know, I'm talking about scheme of redemption in the technical sense. Okay, not mm-hmm. not in the sense of of uh, uh, you know some nefarious plot. So when sure. I say scheme here, I mean scheme of redemption. There are various schemes 
through which someone might receive atonement. Some of those schemes only require the sinner's prayer. Um, some of them require baptism. Baptism uh, might be required in some cases just as an outward sign of an inward change, depending on how Baptist you are, right? Or uh, in the right. case of the of the Church of Christ, it would actually be uh, the last step in remission of sins, right? You cannot receive remission of sins uh, without baptism. If you're uh, if you're a member of the Church of Christ, for <laughs> baptism doth also now save us. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm curious, just in terms of of your own thoughts about atonement, what it takes uh, to, in some sense, be a part of those for whom atonement applies, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you can sort of sum up again that this is sort of asking, like, how then can we be saved, right? Yeah, yeah. And what steps do you think are, are necessary? Is it just following? I mean, is that is that all it amounts to? You know, you, you sort of uh, look into the Old Testament and the New Testament and you pick out those precepts and principles, commands, examples, and necessary inferences that most benefit humanity and are most in a, uh, alignment with the will of God as as best you understand it? Or is there something more to it than that? Is it something more than just saying, this is the practice I'm going to have? Is there some work that you have right. to do other than that to be saved? Yeah, so Sorry I Sorry if that's confusing. That's, no, no, it's a great question. Um, and I don't I don't want to imply that you simply follow like Jesus's teachings and you wake up in heaven when you die. That's the key. I mean, for one reason that starts to verge on like works righteousness there. So I think what's missing from this discussion so far is the idea of the spirit, the Holy Spirit and the actual like relationship with God. Um, and just to give a well, well, first thing, I, I'm a, a lay theologian, philosopher, whatever you want to call it. I am not, and uh, I want people to take what I say with a grain of salt on theology. I sometimes want to break out of the Sunday school answers we sometimes give, but probably for the Christians listening to this, maybe I go a little too far. I want to push some boundaries a little bit. So yeah, take that with a grain of salt. But for me, autobiographically, I think there is an interesting point in my life where I was, so I grew up a Christian. I feel like I've always known God and really had these pretty big Holy Spirit moments and experiences Jesus in my heart in a very real day-to-day way. And then I went through a very, very dark and long time of doubt in late college and throughout my 20s pretty much. But what was interesting was even when I was in this sort of darkest time of doubt, there was this sense of like my identity had already been kind of subsumed into Christ and I had been stamped. I could only go so far away from it. There was this sense. And so even when my brain, when I was doubting the most, there was a sense of I was still in the family somehow. It was a little hard to describe and sometimes actually a spiritual sense, I will say. So I think the end goal is that Christ wants to have a relationship with us in a direct spiritual way, and we need to be purified, and the atonement and mental ascent and all that stuff is like a means to an end to that um, place. 
And so that that is the end goal. And if you're not in that relationship, then I don't see how you're saved. Now you have to add in the, okay, what happens with people who literally have no access at all to that knowledge? I don't think they're just automatically damned. Um, I think it's possible, honestly, that they can have a milder, perhaps, connection to God just directly. I think that's possible. Uh, but yeah. that's sort of the end goal, that the propositional knowledge is how to get there. And even the following the commands is sort of how to get there, that it might wake you up to, wait, if I'm following this person and it works and self-sacrificial love is becoming a cornerstone of how I see the world, and it's all based on this person of Jesus, then, I mean, I wonder what would happen if that person simply prayed, then they might experience something different and feel like a different person at that point, because they're being changed by this new orientation. And I believe an actual person out there who you are interacting with. So I think that's what was missing in this conversation until now is maybe talk of that spiritual, actual spiritual personal relationship. You are a much nicer guy than I than I was as a Christian. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, so so there there's a deep theological question, isn't there, about any human being who never had access to the gospel, right? right. And the Church of Christ view would be so when we think about access to the gospel, we're really talking about the, the Great Commission, right? Matthew twenty eight nineteen twenty, Mark sixteen fifteen sixteen, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, uh, that kind of command, and one of the things that I used to believe, to use a Christian phrase, with my whole heart, right? <laughs> this, thing mm-hmm. that I, this thing that I used to be really committed to uh, was that uh, the Great Commission meant what it said. And those people that didn't hear it, they were condemned. And it was that cut and dried. And, yeah. that's, what, and that's what gave the commission its overarching importance. That that right. is the that is the thing that that holds that sort of conservative doctrine together. That real souls really depend on people going and taking the gospel, and then once they've heard it, the outcome uh, they've been given the chance, right? But it was right. a lot like buying a lottery ticket. You, you can't win the lottery if you don't have a ticket, and. And we were just the door-to-door salesman, I guess. Right, so right. the analogy breaks down, you know. So that was our view, and it is a much more hateful um, and quite condemning view than what you have. So I appreciate that there's some inclusion there. Well, let me um, ask you, like, what you would say back then or your church would say about the figure of, for instance, Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Are you familiar with him? Oh, oh yes, of course, because uh, Melchizedek is the— is the precursor to the Jewish priesthood, right? So we right. don't have. And he the, wasn't Jewish. That, yeah. That's right. Yeah. We don't have the Levites without Melchizedek. And I he's also compared to uh, Jesus in a sense, that, like you said, the high priest. Uh, right. Absolutely. You know, yeah, in the order of Melchizedek. So uh, I don't know how many people. Wow, what a what a call back to um, <laughs> uh, to deep study of of the Old Testament because I don't know. A lot of Christians who understand the issues surrounding Melchizedek. Anyway, I'm, I'm just appreciating this sort of sense of deja vu. And uh, uh, so talking about Melchizedek, I think what we would have said. So I've, I've been big on type anti-type in our conversation right. so far. I don't know that 
the New Testament in the way the Church of Christ understands the modern church has an antitype for the type of Melchizedek. Right. So so certainly there's a relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that it's very well fleshed out. Well, my, my point is he, he's someone not only before Jesus, but not even a Jew who seems in, like honored by God and ultimately a type for the Levites and uh, the mm-hmm. for Jesus himself. So I guess my response to that hard exclusivism is that. Philosophically, it's problematic, you know, morally, that God would just uh, let people, some people not win the lottery. But even biblically, this is what's interesting. Even biblically, it seems like there's these figures who are obviously not Jewish and obviously were before Jesus. And even uh, Job, even if you see him as a parable, it's still a parable about a man who wasn't a Jew and knows God and is righteous and uh, you would never think Job and Melchizedek are in hell right now. So I would question those Christians who say it's impossible for people who don't have the propositional knowledge of Jesus that they can be saved. I would give them Job and Melchizedek and be like, so you're saying they burn in hell? Like, that doesn't seem very biblical to me. Seems like so there's other other ways. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis said that everyone who is saved doesn't necessarily know Jesus, but they're saved through Jesus. So they might not have access to the propositional knowledge of who Jesus is, but it was Jesus's death and resurrection that still saved them. And if they knew about Jesus, they would have been fully on board. If Melchizedek got to fast forward and hear about Jesus, he'd be like, yeah, this is what I've been waiting for. That's boy, that, that's a really interesting. Um, feel free to say, I don't want to answer that. I'll send you an email <laughs> or, or something like that. <laughs> Bro. Because the the obvious next question, and Matthew may have it rolling around his head, is we were both once believers, right? And you know, I I did everything I could to believe. I don't I don't really know how good a believer I was looking back at it today. But you know, it, it was a thing that I that I did in college. I was at least very very interested, and I was a practicing Christian. But what do you do with atheists in your thoughts about atonement is there such a thing as an as an honest atheist in the sense that sorry boy that can i i realize how loaded that is it's not intended no, no, to be loaded, yeah right I, I um is is there an honest atheist in your view in the sense that it is possible to have been a christian and then say but i'm no longer convinced and and i'm not convinced for good reasons and if you think there are honest atheists, uh, both who were former Christians and who aren't, what happens to them on the day of judgment? Great question. And obviously, you know, very low stakes, considering I'm talking to two atheists and uh, yeah. I'm a podcast. <laughs> well, that's why I said feel free to just send an email because I'm not no, setting yeah. you up. I promise I'm not setting you up. No, I appreciate I, guys, I mean, I have to say, like, one of my favorite things is to be able to have these sort of discussions and... Not to bring in a whole another can of worms, but like it is hard to discuss points of view with people who utterly disagree with you these days. I I say that society, Western society, is at an all time low for enabling those conversations. So, no, I it makes my day that we can have uh, discussions like this. So, I I love it. We do too. So, for uh, I think my ultimate answer would be that there could be let's take sort of the extreme version of a person who is an atheist because of 
the gospel they were told was so distorted and ugly that no sane person would accept it. That it was the George Carlin version. Let's say that's the only thing they heard was the George Carlin version. George Carlin explained to this person what Christianity was in his words. And that person says... F that. I'm not believing in that sort of God. Then you quit preaching and gone to meddling, brother. <laughs> quit preaching the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so I get it. Right. So we got to. Um, and like, I fully believe. So my foundation, whatever is true about Christianity, if Christianity is true in the first place, it has to be a good God. And so. I there's just no way, and once again, I don't think even biblically, biblically, you could say that God is going to blame that Christian who heard only about Christianity from George Carlin for that fact. We're back to the lottery, basically. And so the question is, if that person does become saved outside of hearing the gospel, since that was their only chance, you're sort of back in the realm of like Melchizedek. Uh, maybe they don't even realize that it's through Jesus that they're being saved or whatever. But then I think there are atheists who did hear the gospel in a way that should have sparked in them that response. And for whatever reason, but it really was their choice. Mm. They did not respond. And the key difference there is is choice that, hey, we're in a pandemic. So it's like God is offering a vaccine and it's not the people who never even heard about a vaccine or the people who were told the vaccine will cause autism and denied it. It's the people, they, they will not be judged for that because they didn't know. It's the people who were offered the vaccine knowing what it would do and said, no, thanks. I'm not going to do that. Um, those are the ones that will be left behind and uh, damned, to, to to use the sort of technical term. So who are the anti-vaxxers in this? Okay, never mind. I'm definitely going to be calling time on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so look, I appreciate that. It um, be a perfectly safe vaccine and fully tested by science, by the way, just to complete the analogy. <laughs> right, right. Oh, by the way, um, apropos of, of nothing, completely tangential, but it looks like Pfizer is making good progress. At least that's been the news. That's the best news. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I, I don't want to distract this too much but have they been reporting on how this drug how this uh, vaccine needs to be treated sorry Sarah. what do you mean i'm sorry there are challenges with the uh, shipping and distribution of this vaccine yeah like negative 80 degrees celsius yeah. oh be, i hadn't seen that. yeah it's got to be constantly kept at a very very cold temperature and it can only be removed from that temperature four times be between when it comes out from the the, the manufacturing plant and gets injected into somebody. Oh, wow. It's like the little embryos in Jurassic Park. Right? Yeah. You have to keep them in the super cold <laughs> and, freezer. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And you have to have two shots three weeks apart. So there's a whole load of complications. Uh, the the nice thing, though, is that since the effectiveness was so high, it gives them hope that the other vaccines will also be effective. And the Mod Moderna one is also yeah. an mRNA uh, vaccine, so it's very li likely to be effective as well. So at least we'll have multiple options, yeah. and if one of them is not the one that has to be super chilled or whatever, that would be great too. Yeah. 
But I think Germany, the reason, yeah, yeah, I think the reason why they've announced so early is to try to secure some orders before somebody with a much more convenient vaccine uh, mm-hmm. come, comes out because suddenly their Pfizer's one is going to become less attractive. Right. Never buy version Moderna. one, folks. Right. The Moderna, for folks that want to look that one up, Gerald, you were right. That's an mRNA uh, vaccine. It's th- Their code name for the Moderna vaccine is mRNA-1273. Uh, for those folks that want to look it up. So that's Mike Romeo Alpha uh, 1273. And I am I am hopeful on both counts because I, I, I am willing to accept that if Pfizer is the right vaccine for the country, we will work out the shipping. I, I don't know how. We might have to, uh, you know, we might have to create uh, sort of regional vaccine centers or something of that nature right. might, have to, might not be shippable to your local doctor's office in that sense. Maybe it will be. Maybe it'll be expensive. But we're talking about 120,000 cases a day right now. So it's worth whatever we have to do to make the world safe again. So but keeping anyway. on that subject, just just briefly, does the vaccine analogy work for the atonement? Or do you think that's a complete dead end and not even worth fishing down okay so you know you know my problem robert i don't know if you've heard me say this i'll i'll tell you my problem with the biblical story so you've had some experiences i haven't had and i am completely willing to accept that you have experiences that are representative of the holy spirit to you i would not go around and challenge those we could talk about whether the experience you know what the experience was and you know, sort of dissect whether it was possible to be the Holy Spirit or whatever, but that's a different conversation. But for me, even if I had your experiences, I still have a problem with the Bible. And you may have heard me say this in the past. Turning water into wine, the ability to feed the 5,000, maybe raising the dead, you know, uh, killing the firstborn, whatever miracles you think were there, the ability to flood the world with water if you think the the Noah story is a literal story. Whatever whatever miracles you think are uh, are legit. Mm-hmm. None of those cause me to believe the claims in the Bible that aren't demonstrated. That there's a God that can live forever. That he occupies a home outside of space and time. That he can bring us there after death. Or send us to an eternal torture chamber if he maintains one. So happy that you're not an ECT advocate. <laughs> um, you know, that, that he has the perfect capacity to judge the, the righteous and the condemned. All of, all of those sorts of claims, those claims that happen after death, are the claims that would cause me. Those are the things that would have to be demonstrated to me. And I don't believe those things on the backs of other miracle claims. And the reason is this, being able to put a man on the moon does not mean that you can cure cancer. Mm-hmm. And so you get the, so you see the problem, right? That one claim doesn't necessarily demonstrate any other claim, even if you could demonstrate there was somebody that could turn water into wine or whatever. And so it's all kind of a non-starter for me now. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I I understand where you're coming from. And I mean, you can kind of dig in on multiple different angles. Um, Sure. A lot of these debates you hear 
it's this question like someone will, will the the apologist will be trying to argue for like the general reliability of the gospels or something and then the skeptic will say well even if they're generally reliable what does that mean about this crazy story isn't that worthy of discarding and you know there so there's multiple things there i guess well let me ask you this like sure. take um you were comparing the going to the moon and curing cancer those are pretty disconnected things but like Jesus dying and let's say we had good reason to believe he rose from the dead, that at least I would say prima facie seems more connected to what happened on Good Friday and his claims about himself. So let's say there is good reason to believe he rose from the dead. Does that, would that help you at all? It, well, okay. So not, um, that's a good question. And I'll tell you why it doesn't help me particularly and why I think it might help someone else. And, and I wouldn't necessarily argue the point. So um, Jesus dying and raising again were all acts that took place in a temporal universe. Uh, if I accepted the story, I, so I don't, as you know, but let's just, right. let's just go all the way and say that I did. That wouldn't demonstrate to me the capacity to live forever, uh, even if he were raised from the dead. And what we have now, and you know, then, he, then uh, you know, you have the ascension in Acts chapter one, right? And so what you have is a lack of evidence for an ending. And as we, now, if I were uh, a Christian in the first century, and I were more likely to think that heaven was not outside this space time, right? Mm -hmm. Heaven is is somewhere beyond the sky, but in our physical universe. I would be a lot more helped by that story, right? But as far as I can tell, our physical universe, you know, this E equals MC squared thing that we inhabit, doesn't really have room for a heaven. And so the, the death, burial, and resurrection story, um, it doesn't really get started for me because it's just a story in our universe. Interesting. Yeah. So. I guess one thing I want to say is like we can't totally the the way we ultimately reason is we don't think just in like bits and bytes and we're trying to look at if ideally if there's more overarching things that explain so including naturalism you know that uh, that natural laws always hold uh, that's a great overarching hypothesis if we can get to mm -hmm. that you know great so. So I guess I'm a little bit tentative on piecing out, you know, the resurrection from exactly like, I guess immediately you have these questions of, all right, let's say he was merely bodily raised. Um, then immediately it's like, well, why was this man raised? What was he claiming? And what is the narrative that surrounds that? And do we have reasons for believing the larger narrative? But even beyond that, yeah, or in addition to that, is Jesus wasn't doesn't seem to be merely bodily raised like he wasn't resuscitated his if we were to believe the accounts they had he almost had these kind of magical powers of almost phasing in and out of like our space time so you could even use his bodily resurrection as evidence of something beyond what we think of as our uh space time yeah so i i get that in one way except we don't have his body <laughs> and and the lack of a body i don't take as confirming 
the resurrection. Because I guess my point is, if we did, if we did feel like we had enough evidence to believe in the the resurrection, uh, I guess you should add his ascension because he mm. he didn't stick around. If you felt like you had enough evidence for that, that seems like it would give you a pointer to an ending state of something beyond space and time, right? Well, I I don't know um, because. Again, all of these sorts of miracles, what we don't have is a recipe. So we don't have a way to attach the result with the cause. And so I don't know how, you know, if I believed the the miracles of the New Testament, I don't have a way to say that it was magic in the sense of someone. Sorry, that's not intended as a pejorative. Um, Let me let me retract, subtract the word magic. I don't have a way to to say that these things were actually supernatural because I don't know how the tricks were done. And and again, everything sounds like a pejorative now. Uh, I don't know. How, no, I feel you. Yeah, I don't know how the I, I'm. We are having a polite conversation, and I'm really enjoying it. And I don't want to poison the well. I do not I get do. offended easily. Nothing you're saying is bothering me the least bit. Okay, so feel- all right, cool, cool. So I I don't know how any of the works, so I'll use a nice New Testament word there. I don't know how any of the works were done. And so I, I, without any of that connecting tissue, it's just the unexplained. He did a thing, I can't explain it. And I don't know how to make that equal that he's telling me the right story. Yes, Um, so I think two things come to mind for me. One is I always want to be careful that we don't set up artificial goalposts. And what I mean by that is, and you're you're not doing this, but I I think you possibly are taking a step in that direction, but you'll hear some skeptics say, you know, I'll I'll believe it when I see uh, an amputee grow an arm back on CNN or whatever uh, after prayer. Um, And and, uh, great, great. Um, But that, to me, that's exact same as a Christian saying, I will disbelieve when you show me the bones of Jesus. Both to me are... I just dismiss because neither one is actually asking what is the best explanation with the data we do have. Like we can always throw out, I will believe, or I won't believe if you do this or show me this. But um, ultimately that's, that's not the most reasonable thing. The most reasonable thing is to say, what is the best explanation for what the the data we do have? Like I said, you, you weren't really going in that direction, but um, you hear a lot of skeptics do that. So the, the second thing is actually, this brings us back to, my conversation with Matthew about miracles that was on, actually, that was on uh, Dale's channel. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the name of that. Yes, yeah. Let's say the account of um, Heidi Baker, who is a healing evangelist in Mozambique and uh, I think a few other countries. And let's say people literally are becoming, uh, going from being blind to seeing and deaf to hearing on a regular basis, not always, but on a regular basis. And presumably that's not really happening anywhere else. Then we still are not seeing that connective tissue. And in fact, arguably, if we found connective tissue of the healing to a physical cause, it would not be a miracle anymore. So it seems it seems a little odd to wait for the connective tissue because if it is a miracle, it's not going to be there anyway. And so I guess I would say at some point, the pattern recognition in our brain of this happening in this context in this way should be enough evidence to say 
it's likely it's a miracle, at least if you have other reasons to believe. I'm not saying this one thing should do it, mm. but mm. but it, I don't think it should be discounted until we find the connective tissue. Because once again, if you find the connective tissue, then you're almost by definition waiting for it to not be a miracle in the first place. So I think that's a fair critique. I'll tell you how I read it. I agree with everything you said, except that I read the page differently. So because I don't have the connective tissue, what I have is the unexplained, not a miracle. That is chief among our our disagreements. And I will go further and say that I think we could study miracle, given a God who is willing to uh, expose himself to laboratory methods. Uh, I think we could study miracles. So here are some of the things that we could do in a lab that uh, that I think would be at least interesting and informative and potentially confirmatory. So we're good at analyzing systems now and tracking all of the energy in a system, right? We, we know where the energy comes from. We know where it goes. We know how it changes forms, all of that kind of thing. And a miracle, I think, by by its very definition, regrowing a limb, for instance, is energy into a system that came from nowhere. That ought to be something that we could see in a laboratory quite easily. And so I will simply say, bring on the faith healers. Let's get that job done. But right now, what I have is the unexplained backed up by a book that I don't think is reliable because it relies on the unexplained for its story. So that's how I read the page. This may just be down to we've had different experiences, right? And I don't know how to resolve that fundamental conflict. And you've um, taken us way off via (laughs) vaccines into the mud that was straight off. And four hours ago, I asked the question, does the vaccine analogy work for penal substitution and atonement? And I don't think you let Robert answer that. Oh, so <laughs> I was supposed <laughs> no to be paying attention, wasn't I? I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I think I was more treating that question for, for Andrew anyway, since I was the one that uh, brought it up. Well, yeah, is there a critique of the vaccine analogy? Well, yeah, it was it was just a spitballing question, really. Is it a reasonable analogy to make or does it just not work? Because my gut feeling is it probably isn't an analogy that properly works with with uh, the atonement. But I was just happy for, for you guys to jump in on that same question. It definitely doesn't have the element of like there's no well, there's kind of no villain in that story. There's the disease of sin, but there's not really a villain. So it does seem not necessarily that it, it contradicts anything in standard atonement theories, but it seems perhaps insufficient to fully describe an atonement theory. I think it's helpful for describing perhaps like the state of sin and then what the atonement does to solve that. But yeah, there there, there needs to be more elements probably added. So Yeah, I'm the- quite happy with that. I'll say this because there are a lot of listeners going, Andrew, where are you? It's not just Matthew that says, Andrew, where are you? (laughs) There are a lot of listeners who have heard me say that if there's a faith. So I I happen to be an amputee. You you may or may not. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So when I was 17, 18, 19 months old, I had an eye condition uh, called Coates disease. It is a disease that weakens the blood vessels in the eye and causes it essentially to die in place. 
And the doctors removed that eye so long ago that I don't have any memory of it, of it being removed, right? I've just always had one eye. Right. And I have some other eye problems, uh, retinitis pigmentosa and nystagmus and precursors to glaucoma and all sorts of things. I mean, you know, it's practically a medical study where eyes are <laughs> concerned. I have said for a long time, if there is someone who is actually doing limb regeneration, I would fly anywhere, say any prayer, participate in any service, attempt to believe any doctrine, conduct my life in whatever way is necessary for a faith healer to give me this eye back. And I renew that challenge. And, and by the way, if she can do the magic, <laughs> look, I have said this for so long and I've been so frustrated by it that the listeners will hear that as exactly what it was. It was not intended to be pejorative in our conversation, but I have been frustrated by this kind of thing. And I've been to a couple of faith healers uh, as, as a child. And, and so I will just renew that willingness to participate. If she can, if she can heal me, I will pay to have her flown here. Wow. This is, this is not a boast. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, my, my first thought is to like, Man, I almost want to try to get some people together to to help donate to this. Uh, like, I, I actually do. I have donated some to the Global Medical Research Institute, which mm. is uh, set up to document and and get the medical research documentation for miracles. I want more science involved. I want to take more of these challenges. There has to be an element of you are dealing with an agent that everyone agrees does not always do the thing like even in the new testament paul is not healed when he asked for with a thorn in the flesh jesus is not spared the cross when he asks in the garden of gethsemane so there, we can't have the expectation that it will happen every time but i want to i do want to put it to the challenge like i don't want to shy away at all i want to get as much data as we can i'm curious did you happen to hear the bruce fanata story on the hinge podcast the guy the mechanic who his small intestine grew back like 10 inches after prayer something like that no i i haven't heard the story but i've got a um i've got a uh, a local preacher who swears that he was healed of scoliosis and produces x-rays to uh, to to that effect so what do, you, what do you think of that in his case oh man you're gonna make me be honest out loud <laughs> that, that is that is a most unfair thing to do I think he conjured it. I think it's entirely, mm -hmm. dis I don't think all of these stories are entirely dishonest. Yeah. Uh, however, the human body is quite a remarkable machine. And we actually do have animals like starfish who grow back limbs. And so I would be very inclined to invoke a sort of human question here. Now, you, you, might, you might accuse me potentially, potentially legitimately of constructing the goalposts in a way that is deceptive. I think Hume is right. What is more likely, that a miracle occurred or that I was somehow deceived? Now, by deception, it doesn't have to be some shyster doing something nefarious, right? It could be simply that there's an explanation that is perfectly legit that has nothing to do with miracles. And that is why I'm willing to take the test. And I will go a step further. I will go much further for this particular experiment. Anyone who questions today is that guy without an eye, right? Uh, I'll happily do a tour ahead of time and let people stick their fingers in my, well, 
maybe not in the days of coronavirus. <laughs> I will I will happily let people observe that I am orbless. Uh, because because here's the truth. I am skeptical that this is possible. And let me say this. So you said something interesting that we're working with an agent, right? And I, and I, and I, we differ on that, but let's just say that you're right and I'm wrong because I think that's the more interesting conversation. Um, if we're working with an agent who sometimes says yes and sometimes says no, do you agree that it's hard to distinguish between yes, there's an agent and actually we're just wrong that there's not an agent there and something else is going wrong? Do you accept that that could be the reasonable interpretation, that the reason that we're not getting the results every time is because there's not an agent, there's something else going on that we don't understand? So that's why I'm a big fan of talking in terms of these mysterious events clustering around a certain faith. I think that's important. You need that clustering because otherwise it seems like some random either uh, ability of the human body or something else. But just to give an example, let's say there's an eye condition, an incurable eye condition that has strong medical documentation. And let's say we even have video documentation of being healed by Heidi Baker. Let's say there's 10 cases of this and zero cases worldwide in other medical documentation then that is strong, I would say initial strong evidence that something is going on there because of the clustering. It wouldn't be mm. if if it was uh, happening more randomly and bringing it back to vaccines. This is exactly how we know the Pfizer vaccine is 90% effective because it's kind of mind blowing to people who don't know statistics is you have like 40,000 applicants um, trying the vaccine and they only look at like a hundred, I think it was 90 something uh, 97 people that they that had caught the virus. So they only checked 97 people, but statistically, because such a low percentage of that 97 had given been given the vaccine, they know that it's 90% effective. So that's why that clustering is so important. Are you familiar with uh, Sai Baba? Um, just a little bit. I know Sam Harris brings him up. Um, he he is the one that people bring up, and that's part of my complaint. Is like it seems like there's just like one source of some stories with no documentation that I know of. Uh, well, there's video of, documentation uh, for cyber. Right. No, no, oh, really? Yeah. I, I would actually. I, I'm interested in this sort of thing. I I would love links, and, and I'm trying to gather as much as I can. I, I'll say for the listeners, part of the reason that it looks like there are no other faiths that have miracle traditions is because a lot of those faiths are walled off to us because we're English speakers and they are not. It is not true that Muslims don't have a miracle tradition. Muslims do have a miracle tradition. Many Indian faiths have miracle traditions, but the reason we don't hear about them is because they're written about in languages that aren't English. I'm just curious about, I guess I feel like some Muslim apologists would be bringing, would be translating more stuff. I've searched for like Muslim encounters with God, like like Muslim supernatural experiences, and it's been very hard to find anything go to you i'm not saying there's zero I'm not no, saying do there's i need zero. to put you back again or do you want to keep talking <laughs> about miracles oh no. okay we did get off track robert i am yeah. very serious about that challenge because okay. 
there's uh, I'm an amputee. I've offered this challenge, oh, for years now, years and years. And I am willing to uh, do exactly what I said. If she can be convinced to fly to the United States, I will fly her here with my own money. But here is what people will say if it fails. Oh, well, he's an atheist and God can't be put to the test. And I actually think that that is a dodge of colossal proportions. If God doesn't want to reveal himself, we're just sort of wasting our time. Right. And, and I think that the the body of amputees, if this stuff was real, like like you're sort of saying, there should be a worldwide amputee newsletter. We should have a stadium full of amputees every year that get together. We should be celebrating National Miracle Amputee Day. And we're not. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't think God is doing healing amputees at this incredible rate and we just don't know about it or something like that. I think there's some I mean, the Bruce Van Nata account is pretty interesting. People are, are interested because that is growing back his intestines, at least there there is an element of hiddenness. I, I do not deny this. God could be more visible. He could pack those stadiums and heal every single person and multiply the bread every night. You just come down to the stadium and free food. And he's not doing that. The question is, for me, though, since that that ends up becoming a theological question of why is God hidden? So let's go ahead and assume, let's seal that off for a second and say God is hidden and yeah, to a degree. And we need to explain that. But let's say we we did explain that. Then I want to say with the data we do have, does it seem like something funky is going on? My little closing thing on this will be the same with if alien, if there's some solid evidence that aliens had visited the Earth, we should limit the amount of time we should talk about why aliens haven't shown up more visibly. Like, why haven't they shaken the hand of uh, world leaders? That's a worthwhile question, but we also need to ask, does Doug have a spaceship in his backyard or not? Because he claims he does. So I don't want to get those things too confused, uh, but I, I also sympathize with what you're saying. If it's let's bring more science into it, we can agree on that. And let's see if we can make this thing happen. I'm willing and, to document it in the finest tradition that it can be documented. And there's a great book called Testing Prayer by Candy Gunther Brown. She is a Christian, but she's a, a researcher at a secular university. The book is uh, published by Harvard University Press. It's a great book on the history of prayer studies and testing miracles with science and then her own research stuff. So uh, obviously, if you're a skeptic, you're going to read it with a grain of salt, but it has really interesting stuff in it. And a lot of it is literally just like published letters to journals about the debate, if this should even be in there. It's just an interesting read regardless. So that that's what I would recommend for people who are interested. Sure. Well, if you can, if you can get me contact information, what did you say her name was? Uh, Heidi Baker. Heidi Baker. Yes, I will look too, and I will report okay. back uh, over over what I've found, uh, Matthew. That is a uh, this is a pin in the map for uh, for a future show. So you talked about hiddenness of God in the terms of of miracles and how they work. Is there an analogy there between uh, God working in miracles and God working in 
the atonement in that something odd seems to have happened, but nobody can really work out what. It does relate to, I think it was Andrew's question about like how much does a person need to understand the atonement to be saved, which I mean, in that case, I don't think necessarily that terribly much. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is this similar relationship here of, you know, why did God show up, you know, 2000 years ago as a carpenter, you know, lower class person. There is this this humbleness and ultimately, you know, hiddenness, if you want to call it that. And yeah, at the same time, we're, we're saying hiddenness. And if we believe the story, it's literally God came and became a human. So you have to balance what you mean by hiddenness there. But I think there is an element that's similar. Okay. And I think engaging with that, I think personally, my and it, this is how I would take it if I was to reconvert back, is the mechanics of how it works would be of little or zero interest to me. It would just be an acceptance of it worked. And I, I don't think I would even bother looking into any of the arguments as to as to the mechanisms behind it. it I, I think that side of uh, philosophical Christianity wouldn't interest me in the slightest. So I guess the quest, the obvious question from that is, why are so many Christians obsessed with arguing about the mechanics behind uh, the atonement? Is there a history to there? Uh, is you know, can you speak to that at all? Or do you have any thoughts on on that question? So what I did look up and and glean from the Greg Boyd and Craig William Lane Craig podcast, and also uh, N.T. Wright, there are definitely some interesting facets of history here. Uh, one being that, yeah, I know a lot of listeners probably aren't as familiar with these theories, but arguably the Christus Victor was kind of front and center from the beginning. I think there's some debate of how much penal substitution was there. I think you can say it was there, but maybe not quite as front and center. But one thing Greg Boyd brings up is that, well, well another key figure is Anselm in the 11th century. He came up with the satisfaction theory of atonement, which is highly related, if not the same, as penal substitution, because it has to do with satisfying God's wrath. Craig says that theologians had trouble understanding how our relationship was healed to God until Anselm with his satisfaction theory, because then it helped explain why our sin was dealt with on, I guess, a relational level more. But what Greg Boyd brings up that I think is really interesting is that arguably Christian violence became much more prominent post-Anselm because Anselm's penal substitutionary model seems to elevate redemptive violence. It seems to say violence can be a tool to redeem, and so it can become a rationalization for Christians to do violence. So there is a very practical reason to prefer one atonement theory over another is, are we saying the heart of God, the the core problem of the universe is solved by God with violence against an innocent party? That philosophically and back to our own view of God seems to have major problems to it. I think there is some very practical ways this plays out depending, it, it changes how you view God and what the core problem was, I think. Uh, thank you. I had no idea about that violence connection. That's uh, that, that's interesting and uh, very honest of you. So thank you for saying that. 
I, I don't know how to interpret it because, like I hinted before, I my I think my interest in the subject just wouldn't go that far. You mentioned Christus Victor just now, and I think Greg Boyd mentioned that in the Unbelievable podcast. We haven't really talked about that. Can you talk about what the key difference is between uh, Christus Victor and uh, penal substitution? Yeah, so Christus Victor, the focus is on that Christ is the victor defeating the powers of darkness on the cross. However, the mechanic actually worked. The point is that the evil powers were undone and defeated on the cross, and we were freed from bondage in that sin at that point. So I think there is a bit of an implicit idea that the the target is the devil there, and that's what we're kind of being freed from. Once again, coming back to penal substitution, the focus becomes almost a lot about the God the Father's like wrath and having to uh, satisfy that. So the focus shifts, and but arguably penal substitution explains better that reconciliation uh, to God. Yeah, I, I think that it's about the core focus being about Jesus defeating the powers of evil, uh, whereas penal substitution is a law court and we're being declared innocent uh, or pardoned by God. Okay, thank you. And we, with you explaining it that way, I think when I was brought up as a young Christian, I think Christus Victor must have been what it was that, that I was taught, but I didn't know all these labeled descriptions uh, as a young child. Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't. I did not know there's different models of the atonement until I was in my twenties. Um, I even though I had been around some theology and stuff for a while, I was surprised to hear that penal substitution was not the only game in town. Uh, and I should mention those two things can go together. Like I think most penal substitution theorists fully accept all the primary elements of Christus Victor. They would probably just say they're not as fundamental as the law court where we are pardoned. Earlier on when I was talking about how we have to ask for forgiveness in order to access this salvation, does that model of we having to ask to receive still apply to all of the different models? I guess the the obvious answer is yes there, well, except for universalists. So, yeah. So, yeah, let me rewind that then. So the universalist who says that everybody is going to be saved anyway does it matter which one of these models they apply to, or do they have something that's completely different again? I feel like universalism can probably work with any of them because it just has to do with how many people are included or are are accepted. So I feel like you can mix and match those, uh, okay. I would imagine. All right, then. You can tell I just don't think about these things to that kind of level is the reason why I'm asking these questions. Well, so no problem. I I just Googled um, Four Views of the Atonement, which uh, is a book I believe I read probably 10 years ago now. And Greg Boyd is one of the uh, responders for Christmas Victor. And there's also Penal Substitution. Just to give some other names out there for people, there's Bruce Reichenbach is defending the healing view. Then there's a kaleidoscopic view, which I think is more of a amalgamation of things. I know there's like a moral example view that Christ sets the supreme example. So those are some of the other ones. And I think most of them would try to say they include 
most of the elements of the others. A lot of this is what is primary and what is fundamental, I think, is a lot of the debate. Okay. I'm going to ask a really cheeky question here, so feel free to laugh. (laughs) Could you see yourself ever losing a friend over disagreements over which model is the right model? No, unless they were so hardcore that, like, about violence being a part of it that they then went and were violent themselves and use that as a justification or something okay. <laughs> i don't know yeah and um, i'm fully aware so I, I only ask the question That's because i'm answer. aware that yeah <laughs> because sometimes christians can get quite heated over these differences and i remember being a, a christian a young christian in my early 20s in a house group or something like that and seeing people get get, get quite warm over discussing some of the these things and i remember sitting there thinking but we all love jesus why should we be arguing over this Yes, and as we probably all know, the more fundamentalist types tend to constrict what allows you in heaven to their more specific theology. So if you get it wrong, you're risking your salvation. And if you convince me I'm wrong, you're risking my salvation. So, yeah, so, of course, if you think that, then people are going to get really heated, which is very unfortunate. And I should just add right now, I've been railing on penal substitution. and. Part of that is almost a challenge to my penal substitution friends to continue to to kind of explain and bolster their view. And I'm going to apologize for anyone listening if if you hold that and I've mischaracterized. I'm partly trying to highlight what can be an issue. And even if it's a caricature of some of what I've said, it's a lot of what people on the ground in the pews believe and that has problems with it. And I'm trying to highlight that. So I'm not fully convinced of like whatever my view is Uh, yeah i just want to put it out there that like penal substitution view good chance it has more going for it than i realize but i have distanced myself over the years for these problems right okay um i'm just picking up little things here these are scraps i don't think there's going to be anything deep in these sort of final questions here but one thing that i'm remembering is the last time i read the c.s lewis narnia series read them all through it was quite a few years ago but the the last battle right there right at the very end where where Aslan has the conversation with the the soldier from the other army and says you served your leader with honesty and integrity you can come with me i always had difficulty with that that final scene i'm assuming uh robert that you know what i'm talking about here i've actually um, not uh read the book so i don't i don't know I, it's on my list to finally read all of them okay. so he's just the other soldier uh to come come with me is that what yes you said? basically the, it's an enemy soldier but the en- enemy soldier i can't even remember exactly how the conversation starts but the enemy soldier right at the very end of the last battle where when everything is going into darkness and being destroyed for the final time. Aslan's uh, final words to this enemy soldier is, you you served your leader with honesty and integrity, you may as well be one of mine, and, and takes him. So the unsaid implication there is somebody who isn't converted to Christianity, but is, but say, let's just say, say they're a Muslim for argument's sake, but is as diligent and as uh, well-meaning uh, within their Muslim faith as, any Christian would be or is expected to be that in the final judgment they are treated as though they were a Christian. That, that's, that's the unsaid uh, implication right. behind that. 
and I always had difficulty as a Christian reading that passage I it didn't sit well with me but I could never really explain what the problem was that I had with it interesting yeah I mean it definitely goes back to those questions of who could be saved outside of like the gospel or or whatever I definitely think people can be saved outside of propositional knowledge of the gospel the question is exactly how that works and what disposition of the heart do they need to have like I guess the way I tend to to see it is like would they run towards the light if the light was there and if they would then I don't think that's gonna they're going to sometime somewhere have that choice the choice is not going to be denied so ultimately I guess I I'm okay with that passage where I'm in in my faith Okay, you just have to read it now and find out, won't you? Yeah. <laughs> now, that, now that I've spoiled the ending. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> um, I guess my my final question would be, what key nugget from the various models of the atonement or how atonement works, what key nugget from that would you want the the reluctant believer to understand in their first days of questioning or tentative acceptance of Christianity? I would probably say that the enemy is sin and darkness and the devil, and that God himself was the sacrifice to free us, and that we we shouldn't get too far away from that framing of things, no matter how we see quote unquote, God's wrath and appeasing it and all that, that we shouldn't let that draw us away from the more fundamental thing. So I guess this makes me, you know, a Christus Victor person, but of that the enemy is sin and evil itself. It's death, it's suffering, it's the Hitlers of the world, it's Satan. And God himself was willing to die a horrible death to free us from that. And that should be our starting point. Okay, thank you. And I think I identify with that as a, a description as, as well. And can I ask you guys a, a quick question? Um, Go for I it. know I know a lot, and I know um, David on Skeptics and Seekers uh, is bothered by this too. But like you know, all the blood sacrifice stuff—it's very, it's very obviously, literally, very cultic and gross and weird. And you can carry that into the atonement. Um, and then when you add in the idea of like god needing to vent wrath and who cares who it is he just needs to vent it like you you can end up with this george carlin ugly picture and so i'm curious just like for you guys do the way i express things and explain things do you think in any way i'm successful in clearing some of that up or making it seem a little bit more plausible a little bit more moral or or do not buy it at all um, it's that's a very good question the um the uh the wrath part of it is definitely off-putting for me it really is it to the point where it would very possibly even turn me right off so that bit is certainly problematic for me um for my difficulty with going beyond that is and we're going back to the deviation we we took earlier 
there's conditions before I start to take atonement seriously. And the conditions are I need to be convinced of God. I need to be convinced of the Christian God. I need to be convinced of Jesus. I need to be convinced of the crucifixion and resurrection. So all those things need to be convincing in my mind in order for me to be more serious about the atonement than I already am. So at risk of sounding like I'm running away, I don't really know how how to go much further in answering your question. Sure. So for me, I, I think the answer is pretty easy in one sense. A gospel that is more aligned with humanist values in the sense that what can be said to be cared about is more and better human thriving, in my view, is always, always, always a preferable dissection of the gospel story than a story that depends on, um, uh, you know, some sort of suffering, right? Some, some sort of sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of scenario. And so right. in, in that sense, and in the sense that it, it is pretty obvious that you think carefully about these things, it is a more palatable version of the story. And I've, and so I don't want this to just seem like I'm saying something nice at the end of a show or something. This is something that I've, I've thought all through the show. We've had a, we've had quite a good conversation, I think. And I think you made your case well, right? I mean, uh, it, it's, it's not going to be any surprise when the listener feedback comes in and it says, you know, Robert was great and he made a compelling case for his view. That wouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> in fact, um, uh, it should be that way. On the other hand, we haven't gotten past some potentially unexplained events. And I, I think that's where we are. I don't think the clustering argument uh, works. There are miracle traditions in lots of faiths around the world. I don't see any particular reason to accept Christian claims, and, and I think we've agreed that we are uh, in claim territory sans scientific demonstration. That said, we potentially have a little project together. I live in a community, a, an extended community, not geographically, but virtually. I live in a virtual community of actual amputees. I've got friends who were twins at birth who are missing both eyes. Both of them, they, they have four wow. eyes between them or should have, and they don't, and neither of them have an eye. I've got a friend that's missing both hands and both feet due to uh, a problem uh, after a surgery. His, uh, his blood went septic, lost his hands and feet. I've got a friend that is a one-armed basketball player. Some of these people are Christians, some of them aren't. I am absolutely for giving a faith healer a chance to set up a, a sort of gospel meeting and give this person the best possible odds to demonstrate that there's not only a God out there that has an atonement story, but can put his money where his mouth is. And I am willing to go to the wall to make an all amputee gospel service happen. And let's see if there's a God out there to whom 
there is a need to atone. It's powerful. We'll, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> and I didn't say it earlier, uh, Robert, you are absolutely what I would call a, a safe Christian. And I genuinely mean that as a compliment. You have gone out of your way to sell Christianity as something that is loving. And that is in contrast with some of the conversations that I've had on social media. So so thank you for that. And I think as an ambassador for Christianity, you, you certainly are somebody who is worth listening to. Uh, and uh, thank and you. I, and I, 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 really I, I do. I, I mean that as a, as a genuine compliment. And the same goes for, for Daniel, who we've also had on here, uh, a Christian. And you and Daniel are the kinds of Christians that I want to have conversations with. And I feel safe that if I wanted to have an awkward or a difficult conversation with a Christian, you are somebody who I would feel safe to have that conversation with. So to go back to your, to your earlier question, I think in terms of accepting of anything that's Christianity or be the kind of Christianity that, that you exude, and I think the details and the mechanisms are, are far less important to me than the, the character with which it is expressed. Absolutely. I really appreciate that. I do need I to say gonna... one more thing. Okay, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. You, you go first. Well, well okay. I was just saying, so, I, I would. <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, we're going to let you go, Andrew. <laughs> oh, okay. I want to say that in that last paragraph, when I was sort of offering a close, something got lost there in a sort of owe you an apology. Because the vast majority of what I said had to do with talking about a whole different show, an idea of sort of vetting miracles, right? And that didn't really address in any real way what we've talked about here, which is atonement. So I don't want it to get lost that we had an absolutely fantastic conversation on atonement. And I think you made a, a very good case for ransom versus penal substitution. And, and in case that didn't come across, in case that was somehow lost in the rest of it, it's really important to me that you hear that. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And Matthew, I really pre appreciate your kind words. And yeah, this has been a delight. And I count you two as, you know, this is my first time chatting with you, Andrew, but I, I'll add you to the list of skeptics I can have great, fruitful discussions with. You know, I, I feel like we don't just go in circles, which is a huge achievement when you compare to a lot of these sort of debates, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. but I, yeah, I really appreciate what you guys said. And Matthew, I think it's, isn't it terribly sad that it's hard or it can seem at times hard to find a good moral heart at the center of what should be the very thing it's all about in Christianity? Mm. You know, like like the thing that should attract people sh to Christianity is cr what we talked about today. Christ on the cross, dying a sacrificial death, uh, an enemy loving meeting, God meeting humanity where... Uh, we're at like if that is the heart of our faith how can we be vitriolic and mean-spirited and all and ultimately fundamentalist uh closed-minded i guess i should say it's like it's sad to me that that is such a common experience with a lot of christians but what's encouraging to me is i feel like i'm closer to the teachings of christianity if i'm if i'm more uh, representing that heart of Christianity. 
if, if I can achieve that, then I'm not doing anything new and weird and modern. I'm doing what I think was from the very beginning of Christianity, which is the self-sacrificial, you know, enemy loving faith. Uh, when I, whenever I do achieve that in no way, am I claiming to always achieve that? But, um, yeah, it's sad to me that that isn't always your experience, uh, Matthew. And so maybe I can be an ambassador even to Christians to, to, to treat their, uh, skeptic friends a little bit more like that. And I hope you are that ambassador because I, you are absolutely the kind of Christian that I believe embodies the ethos of Christianity. So, so thank, well, thank you. you. With all the embarrassing man love stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm crying on. over here, but, you know, let's just keep <laughs> yeah. going. So the final question of the evening, do you have a favorite Bible character and who are they? Apparently it will be a repeat. We, we talked about this off air before, but I didn't reveal because it is Peter, which Andrew, I believe you said Peter for yourself. Um, oh, right, but I've never I've never told that story. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Yeah, so, so you're the you're the first, first guest. I got you first. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Peter. Uh, as soon as you asked me, as soon as you told me you were going to ask me which uh, about which my favorite Bible character would be, Peter immediately came to mind because. And actually, I have to say this: I, I said something about identifying with him, but in some important ways, I'm not like him, and I want to be more like him. And what I mean by that is, Peter was captivated by Jesus in this the way I was talking about earlier about I think the heart of who Jesus was and the whole message and he didn't always have the details right and he would go headstrong into situations because of his love for Jesus like when he cut off the guard's ear um, but he did the wrong thing but what I love about that is in my view I think God would much rather have 10 people who are messy and screw up out of their love for him and of goodness than to 10 people who make fewer mistakes, quote unquote mistakes, but sit back and overanalyze everything. This is partly a Bonhoeffer sentiment I'm stealing from, by the way, in Call to Discipleship. He talks about this sort of idea and it challenges me because I'm an overanalyzer. I would rather sit back and think before I act. And I think there's a time to act with your heart. And I love that about Peter because you can tell his heart is in the right place. Thank you, Robert. I think that actually was a repeat as well. Andrew wasn't on that episode, but Darren and I interviewed Paul Downs from the Genexus course. And I think he said Peter as well. He, he oh. talked about Peter being the rock on which Christ would build his church. You took a different angle on Peter, Robert which I think was very, very cool. So he didn't actually say the same thing that uh, Paul said. There you go. How can the listeners find you? What projects are you involved in? Uh, you know, uh, do you have publications that you'd like to, uh, to talk about? Tell us. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> didn't get a single moment. Uh, now that we're down to uh, approximately 7% of the listeners that started the show. Um, <laughs> listen to this. Yeah, that, um, that means there's about a third of a listener left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so my you can find me at the best place to go is just to go to my website, which is Robert L. White, like the color, dot net. And um, that's I have a blog there. I also post YouTube videos that are also connected to a podcast. So um, you can also just search Robert L. White, you know, Apple iTunes or, 
uh, any of your pi- um, Android for those those weird PC people or whatever. <laughs> I, I, I worked one in. I worked one in. You know, I'm... Oh, good lads. <laughs> um, uh, I also try to be active on Twitter here and there. Uh, Robert L. White. Uh, actually, my handle sucks for that. It's Robert L. White underscore II. Uh, I never give that out like, for the second. So just just go to my website. Forget about Twitter. Why did I say that? Uh, Robert L. White but, underscore II. Spoken like <laughs> a man who uses a Microsoft programming language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not A-Y-E, A-Y-E, like a pirate. It's um, the letters, I should oh, say. Oh, um, gotcha. It, wow. Because I, I'm um, the second, and that handle was not available. Right. So. I, I, I clearly plan to never get this out over audio, and um, so just, yeah, go to my website, and the one thing I'll say is, if you're interested in this, um, scroll back a page or two on my blog, and there's a debate about retributive justice, and I think it was a really great debate between me and my friend, um, and you can dig in more that way, too. But guys, thanks so much for letting me uh, join you guys for this awesome discussion. Thank you, Robert. So if you're listening and you'd like to get in touch and say hello, agree, disagree, take a flamethrower to some point that was offered, uh, you can always reach us at reasonpress at gmail.com. And if you look in your show notes, you can also click the link that allows you to leave a voice message just in case you're not terribly fond of the whole email thing. Reach out to us by leaving us a voice message. We may even play that on air. And please do go and check out Robert's podcast. It is good. And check out the blog. Check out his website. And Robert, thank you again for joining us. And listeners, we You've will see you next time on another episode. Still to get in touch, email reasonpress at gmail.com or see our website, reasonpress.net, where you'll also find our book, Still Unbelievable. We welcome more feedback, and you might even end up on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly, you can hear more of her music at soundcloud.com slash hollybishop. You can support us by buying some of Holly's music and telling her we sent you.